Hey, welcome to Genesis. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to say thank you for tuning in with us online today. We have heard so many wonderful stories from you, from many of you that have said what a blessing this online experience has been. And we're glad. We, we want to, as a church family, we want to gather together to focus and to worship on Jesus together. But I also want to encourage you. I want to challenge you in a very specific way. Over the last several weeks and even months, we have seen more and more people regathering with us in person. And it's been really exciting to see how our church family is coming together. We have uh, people that are new to Genesis. Like many of you, they've been watching online, but they've been coming to one of our physical campuses. And they say, we feel like part of this church family. We're ready to move along with you. And that's exciting for us. And so I want to encourage and challenge you, if you've been tuning in online for a while, to take a chance and to come visit us at one of our physical locations whenever you're ready. We have a campus in Noblesville, a campus in Carmel, and our services are at 9 and 1030. And so we would love to meet you in person and to help you take a next step in your spiritual journey. And as we approach the fall, there's a couple of specific ways that you can get connected around here. We would love to help you get connected to a group and to find a place to serve. So if you have any questions, you can email us at info at genesischurch.me or you can just drop us a comment in the comment section. We'd love to follow up with you and help you get connected. So my father-in-law, Daryl, is a really good gift giver. He likes to give you the kind of gifts that he knows that you want, but you're a little hesitant to spend the money yourself. Do you have anybody in your life like that? And, and I've been very thankful to be the recipient of his generosity on numerous occasions. And so this last year at Christmas, he teamed up with my wife to get me something I had wanted, but I just did not want to spend the money on. And it was a solo stove, which is just a, a smokeless fire pit. And our family absolutely loves it. It looks just like this. It sits on our back porch. And we love burning a fire on a cool evening and enjoying the warmth of the fire. Or sometimes we enjoy starting a fire just so we can watch it glow as the sun sets off in the distance. And we love it. But as I was setting up this really simple contraption on my deck for the very first time, I noticed that it came with a host of what seemed to be some pretty obvious warnings. The first warning was, do not use this product indoors. And I guess the people at Solo Stove know that some of us need, just need things spelled out for us very, very clearly. But there were other warnings like, do not use this on wooden surfaces. Don't use this in windy condition. And of course, this one goes without saying, but be careful with children around an open fire so they don't get hurt. And so here's the question. Why would the people at Solo Stove issue all of these warnings that seem so obvious? Well, here's the thing. They want as many people as possible to buy their product. They've created it, they've designed it to work in a certain way. They know that fire can be really enjoyable and comforting, but they're also wise enough to know that fire can be really dangerous and very devastating. People can get hurt, property can be damaged. And so today we're gonna look at an amazing gift that God himself has invented and that he has designed for us as humans to be able to enjoy. And let me tell you, it's an amazing gift but throughout scripture, this particular gift is often compared to, with fire and it can bring comfort or it can bring destruction depending on how it's handled. And so you're probably thinking, well, this is amazing. Like, tell me about this gift. Well, I want to be honest. It's a little bit awkward to talk about, especially in a mixed crowd or in a church setting. It's going to be awkward if you're a parent with kids in the room. And I think it might be even more awkward if you're a child watching with your parent, regardless of how old any of you might be. So this gift is a three-letter word. It starts with S, it ends with X, and it rhymes with sex. 
That's the gift. The gift is sex. And the fact that I use the S word out loud in church probably makes you feel a little awkward. And trust me, I get it. I have four children that are going to be watching this message along with us. But this year as a church family, we've been reading through God's word together. And a few weeks ago, our reading plan took us through the book of Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, which as it turns out, the Song of Solomon is all about romance, love, and sexual intimacy. And if this topic makes you feel awkward, you're in really good company because in ancient Hebrew traditions, rabbis refused to let children under the age of 13 read this really important book because they said it's just too risque for their young minds. And in the third century AD, when the early church followers, uh, fathers were, were deciding on which book should be included in the Bible, many of them said, do not include the Song of Solomon. It just speaks about sex too explicitly. And so I know what you're thinking if you're a teenager, you're thinking, I'm going to go home and read this book. Like I'm going to get into some intense Bible study. So I just want to be safe and issue a PG-13 rating for today's message. So if you have young ears listening in, it is totally fine right now to hit pause and to send the kids to the other room or to come back at a later time so you can watch and, and listen. But I do want to encourage you to tune in because God has some really important things to say about this gift of sexual intimacy. But I do want to say this too. I've tried my very best to prepare this message from the standpoint of my children who range in age from 15 down to eight years old. And my goal is to teach on this topic in such a way that my wife, Casey and I, and for all parents for that matter, could have age appropriate conversations with our kids when the time is right. So if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to go ahead and open it up and uh, open up to the book of the Song of Solomon. It's in the Old Testament. If you have a paper version and you open it up, it's gonna be really close to the middle. It comes after Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and it's right before the book of Isaiah. Now, some of you in your Bible, it might say, it might be titled the Song of Songs. And that actually comes from chapter one, verse one of this book that says this, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. And that phrase, Song of Psalms, is a Hebrew idiom or an expression that simply means the greatest of all songs. Now, there's similar language used throughout scripture like, uh, to describe the, the holiest place in the temple for the Jews was the holy of holies. It's the most holy place. Jesus is often referred to as the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, meaning he is the greatest King, the greatest Lord that has ever lived. And in this ancient Hebrew scripture, it claims to be the greatest song that King Solomon, the wisest man on the earth in his day had ever written. And it's believed that he wrote over 1000 songs. And so considering the fact that this ancient scripture is, has long been considered God's holy word. It seems wise for us to read it and to study it and to know what it says so we can apply it to our life, even if it's on a topic that makes us feel a little awkward. Now, to be honest, we don't know for sure if this book was written by Solomon or about Solomon, but scholars seem to agree that it does seem to appear to be written about Solomon and his first wife and their relationship. And one of the things that makes this book so unique is that it's poetic in nature. It records an ongoing conversation between a wife who is referred to as beloved and her husband who is referred to as lover. And one of the key verses in this book is found in chapter eight, where we find the wife beloved speaking to her husband. And she says this, you've probably heard this read at a, at a wedding before, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. 
Now, those verses are very rich in meaning, but specifically, I want you to pay attention to the part that refers to love being a fire. Because throughout scripture, love is compared to a fire. And as we've already said, love or or fire, if it's properly contained, can bring warmth and comfort and security. But as we all know, a fire that's mishandled is is guaranteed to burn somebody. Someone's going to get hurt. And if it goes under control, it can just be completely devastating. Okay, so no more delays. Here we go. We're going to jump in. Chapter one, verses one through two says this. This is Solomon's song of songs. More wonderful than any other. Verse two, kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than wine. Okay, guys, we're two verses in and we already have some really heavy kissing and a reference to alcohol. And maybe some of you are like, la, 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 la. I don't want to know. I don't care, right? But they're just getting started. Look at verse four. Take me with you. Come and let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. And so these two lovers, they're not wasting any time. They're kissing and they're running away to find a private place so they can get down to business. But there's something important that I want to point out. One mistake that we often make when we read a book like this is we assume that it's written in sequential order, meaning the couple meets, the couple makes out, and eventually they get, they get married. But this book isn't written in sequential or chronological order. The Song of Solomon is a collection of seven to eight snapshots or poems that give us insight into the depth of this couple's relationship with one another. And so chapter one begins with beloved and lover swapping some spit and the rest of the chapters through one through three records them sharing sweet nothings back and forth to one another, which eventually leads to chapter four, which I'm not gonna lie to you, it gets really racy and a little steamy, okay? Chapter four begins with the husband speaking to his wife saying this, you're beautiful. My darling, beautiful beyond words, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Now, I want to take a moment and talk to all the guys out there. I want you to grab a pen and take some notes. And if you are a young man that's not yet married, pay close attention because Solomon is going to show us why he was considered to be the wisest man on the earth in his days. Because for starters, he speaks to his wife and he compliments her beauty. He doesn't act like an animal and just attack her. He spends the whole first half of chapter four using his words to tell his wife just how beautiful she is. And and he begins by complimenting her eyes. And think about this. This is a good indication of where he's looking. Guys, this is really important. She's not an object to obtain or a piece of meat to devour. He wants her to know that he sees her. And in his eyes, she is beautiful. And so guys, if you're taking notes, young men, if you hope to be happily married one day, I want you to write this down. The best place to start when you're courting a woman is to look into her eyes and to use your words, not to flatter her, not to lie to her, not to get her into bed, but to tell her how beautiful she is. This is important. So the husband continues. He says this, after complimenting her eyes, he says, Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Now, ladies, I'm wondering, is that a good pickup line? I thought about using it on my wife. It doesn't seem really good. Like you're so beautiful. Your hair looks like a bunch of goats on a hill. And guys, maybe you don't need to use this verbatim. I don't know that that's a good idea. Maybe it's just good to remember, compliment a woman's appearance. Tell her how beautiful she is. Now, to his credit, the husband, this is what he is saying. In his, in his culture, this would have been a very erotic verse because in public, women would wear their hair up, but in private, they would actually let their hair down. And so this husband is describing the moment that his wife's hair is being let down and it's hitting her shoulders. And he looks at her and says, 
How you doing? Right? He, he likes what he sees. And so ladies, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. While many of you respond to verbal cues, you want to hear your husband's words. Men tend to be stimulated by visual cues. And so allowing your husband to be visually stimulated by what he sees is just as important as the words that you long for him to hear from him. And so after complimenting her hair, he moves down to her mouth and he says, your teeth are as white as sheep. They, are, they look like they've been freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth is matched with its twin. Basically, he says, girl, I'm so glad you got all your teeth, right? Now we tease, but think about this. This tells us that she is smiling back at him. And so they're having fun. They're taking their time. They're enjoying this because remember, this is God's gift to a married couple. Now, if you keep reading, well, he moves down her body from her hair to her teeth, to her lips, and then to her neck. And he keeps driving south from there. And by the time you get to verse seven, essentially he says something to the effect of you're the cutest thing I ever did see. I really love your peaches, want to shake your tree. Now he didn't say that. He actually says that later in the book. That's from the Steve Miller band in the 70s. But I'm telling you, I think he got the idea from the Song of Solomon because this is what he says in verse seven. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. You're beautiful in every way. And so I want you to picture the scene. She's standing before him. She's naked. She's totally exposed. And yet because of his careful timing, because of his tasteful words, she can feel totally secure standing in front of him. And all this sweet talk leads us to the first key to understanding sexual intimacy. And it's this, sexual intimacy begins with emotional intimacy. And this is really important because it's easy for us to assume that sexual intimacy is just a physical act. But here the Song of Solomon is teaching that sexual intimacy begins with emotional intimacy where a man and a woman get to know one another and they trust one another on a deeply personal and emotional level before things ever get physical. And here we see this husband using his words to create physical intimacy with his wife. Now I wanna stop for a moment and I'm gonna say a quick word to anyone out there that's single or maybe you're a student. Don't ignore this. Don't write this off. Don't roll your eyes. I realize that sexual urges are real, that hormones are real. They're hard to control. But when it comes to sexual intimacy, God, his intent for all of us is to take your time and to find someone that you can connect with on a very personal level first so that eventually the emotions lead to the physical act of sexual intimacy together within the boundaries of a marriage between a, a husband and a wife. And developing emotional intimacy that leads to a healthy marriage, it's not a process you can microwave. You can't just rush through it. It's something that takes time and intentionality and patience and prayer and lots of humility. And I promise you, speaking as someone that's experienced this, if you rush that process at all, you are guaranteed to end up being a burn victim. You're going to get burned and the people that you're sexually active with, they're going to be burned and, and potentially scarred for life as well. And so in chapter four, we find the husband using his words to create emotional intimacy with his wife. And in essence, he says, this is how I see you. This is how I feel about you. And let's be honest, guys, he's really smooth. He knows what he's doing, right? And for the sake of time and potential embarrassment for all of us, I'm going to spare you the detail because the rest of chapter four, well, it just gets a little spicy. I want to encourage you to go home and read it later. But there's another important key to sexual intimacy that we can learn here. And that is this, 
emotional intimacy leads to physical intimacy. And for the record, there's a lot of physical intimacy that's recorded in the Song of Solomon. But this is what we need to remember. This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. This was God's idea. Sex is a gift from him. He designed it with us in mind. And in many ways, the Song of Solomon is a celebration of what sexual intimacy can and should look like within the boundaries of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman as husband and wife. I was, I was talking to a good friend of mine who was having the sex talk with his oldest son and they have four kids and they go through all the details and the son is like, oh my gosh. And he goes, so dad, I'm the oldest of four. So you, you mean to tell me that you and mom have done this like what, four or five times maybe? And the dad kind of smiled and said, well, we like to do it a little more frequently than that, right? It's awkward, but here's the thing. This is a gift from God. And parents, we need to be having those conversations with our kids early and often so they understand that. It's awkward, sure, but it's a gift from God that we need to embrace. Now, there's another important and inter interesting thing to point out, and that's this. One of the Hebrew words for sex is the word dode, and it literally means the mingling of souls. So think about this. God has designed sexual intimacy in such a way that two people, when they come together emotionally and physically in the physical act of sex, their souls, the eternal and most intimate part of their beings mingle and merge together as one, which points to another key to understanding sexual intimacy. And that's this sexual intimacy should result in spiritual intimacy. Now I say should because that's how God's designed it to work. But if you misuse it, the spiritual component gets completely thrown out the door and totally messed up. Sexual intimacy literally links people together spiritually. It was designed by God to draw two people closer to one another and to him at the very same time. This is why it's so important that we understand and respect and experience sexual intimacy within the boundaries of a marriage as opposed to hooking up with whoever we want, whenever we want, and expecting not to get burned in the process. It doesn't work that way. So for those of us that are married, here's the challenge. When it comes to sexual intimacy, we need to approach it by cherishing it as a gift that it is. It is a gift from God. God's intention is that through the gift of marriage, a husband and a wife can become one emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And the act of sex is so powerful that it can literally result in the creation of an entirely new person. It's a beautiful and amazing thing. And in his great wisdom and goodness and love, God has designed sexual intimacy, not only to help a husband and wife grow closer to one another, but to draw them closer to him in the process. But part of cherishing the gift of sexual intimacy requires a husband and a wife to work together to learn how to satisfy one another, which if you've been married, you know, that can be really challenging, right? And when there's fighting or there's strife, that doesn't mean that you get to bail on your spouse and look for a new one. It certainly doesn't mean that you sleep around behind their back or that you turn to pornography to please yourself. The goal of a biblical marriage is for a husband and a wife to, learn, to, to remain faithful and true to one another emotionally, physically, and spiritually until they're separated by death. And so to quote a proverb from the 90s, husbands and wives, don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Cherish the gift of spiritual intimacy as a gift from God above. Now, all that sounds great, right? And it is, but what if you're single? I mean, if you're single, you're probably thinking, great, here we go. Does this mean that I'm incomplete in some way until I'm married? And I just want to say, no, you're not. And I have really good evidence of that. You know why? 
because Jesus was single and he was the most complete person that has ever walked the face of this planet, body, soul, mind, and spirit. In fact, when you look at Jesus's relationship with God, it redefines how we relate to God and Jesus was not incomplete in any way. So if you're, if you're single, you are in very good company. You don't need to be married to be complete. But when it comes to sexual intimacy, I do want to challenge you to respect the boundaries that God has established for it. And so while you wait for your future spouse, I want to encourage you to respect the boundaries by waiting and trusting God's word, trusting that God's going to send someone into your life, the, the right person that you can connect with emotionally, physically, and spiritually so that you can avoid getting burned by the fire of sexual intimacy outside of the boundaries of marriage. Don't date around or don't sleep around. Be really, really careful because you and other people are going to get burned in the process. And look, I'll admit, this is easy for me to say as a man in my 40s with a wife and four kids. But I'm going to be honest with you. If I were single, I know this is what I would need to hear. This is what I needed to hear when I was single. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. And I'm not promising that God's going to send you somebody right away. But based on what we find in scripture, I think we could all agree that the wisest thing is to respect the boundaries that he's put in place while you wait. Now, I also want to take a moment and talk to students. And I know, look, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I have gray hair, but I can still remember being in your shoes. I was in the high school and middle school in the mid 90s. And I remember the constant attacks on my sexual purity when I was a teenager and all the temptations. And look, this was before the invention of the internet and smartphones. And I now have a high schooler and a middle schooler and I've got two coming up. And I gotta be honest with you. My wife and I are overwhelmed at navigating this with them. I can't imagine how hard and how difficult this must be for you as students to maintain your purity with what you see and what you hear and how you engage with your peers. But if, if I could give you one piece of wisdom, if I could plead with you in any way, when it comes to approaching sexual intimacy as a student, I wanna strongly encourage you to be wise and to wait on it. And look, it's no secret. We live in a world that thinks a biblical view of sex is ridiculous and outdated. When it comes to sex, our culture screams there are no boundaries. You should be able to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, as often as you want. And anyone that disagrees with that, they're not worth listening to. But you know what? It's not just that. The world teaches that sex is a selfish act that we pursue individually so that we can be satisfied right now. And that is not how God has designed it to work. It's a husband and a wife caring for one another together. And actually the Song of Solomon speaks about this on three different occasions. In chapter two, in chapter three, and in chapter eight, this phrase is repeated. It says this, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And I love the way that one, one commentator says this. It says, let love progress and grow until it's matured and fruitful, making a genuinely pleasing relationship. In other words, the Song of Solomon is saying, don't rush things. Because rushing sexual intimacy is guaranteed to leave you burned. And by the way, how many of you as adults remember being a student and wanting to be in or being in a relationship or being trapped in a relationship just so you could experience love like everybody else? But years down the road, you realize, I just wasted a lot of time pursuing someone 
that wasn't good for me. I wasn't good for them. And we're not even together in the first place. And so no matter how old or young you might be, if you're longing to find a faithful spouse, you would be wise to heed Solomon's warning to not arouse or awaken love until the time is right. Now, as we wrap up, there's another really important aspect of sexual intimacy that we need to touch on, and that is the dangers of sexual sin. And look, this is a broad topic, and I realize it's awkward, but I really think it can be boiled down to one simple word, and that's lust. Lust is defined as an intense or an unrestrained sexual craving for someone that is not your spouse. I want you to listen to how the book of Job describes lust. Job says this, for lust is a shameful sin a crime that should be punished. It's a fire that burns all the way to hell. It will wipe out everything I own. Man, Job, those are very intense words, but he speaks of it like fire that burns all the way to hell. That is not good. Listen to what Proverbs 6, 27 says. Can a man scoop fire into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? It's talking specifically about lust. You can't hold on to fire and not get burned. The dangerous thing about lust is we trick ourselves into thinking, well, it's in my mind. It's in my heart. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows. No one else is getting hurt, but nothing could be further from the truth because lust actually rots us from the inside out. And not only that, it distorts the emotional and the spiritual component of sexual intimacy. Now, Jesus was actually really outspoken when it came on to his stance on lust. He said this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, listen, Jesus connects the act of lust with the actions of our eyes and our hands. And so since there might be young ears listening, I'm not going in any further here, but I think we know what he's referring to, right? And in his great love for us, he has provided a stern warning against the act of lusting and pleasing ourselves sexually. And so let's just be honest for a moment. Look, we're all gonna fall and stumble when it comes to lust and and, and sexual sin and temptation. Unfortunately, it's part of the human condition. But here's the thing. For those of us that follow Jesus and we trust God's word to be authoritative in our life, when we, when we fall, when we stumble, we need to confess that we've failed. And then we move forward in repentance by respecting God's good gift of sexual intimacy within the boundaries that he's created for it. And look, I'm not saying it's, it's gonna be easy. It's not easy. In fact, I think it gets harder every day. We're bombarded with so many different things, but I do trust that God in his word, when he says to wait and to, and to, to respect those boundaries, it's gonna be worth it. I trust him at that. Now, there's one last thing I want to hit on when it comes to the Song of Solomon and why I actually taught to teach out of this book this summer. I've always been taught that every book in the Bible points back to Jesus. And I'm like, I want to know how this book points back to Jesus. Here's what's crazy. There are a variety of ways that this book points back to Jesus. For starters, a lot of commentators believe, I said this earlier, that this book is about a love story between Solomon and his first wife. And if you read in verse one or chapter one, what we learn is she was a shepherdess. And she tended a flock of sheep with her brothers. And it's believed that those were Solomon's sheep in Solomon's field. And one day King Solomon was passing through and he saw this beautiful young lady and he wanted to get to know her. And so here's what he did. He hid his identity as king and he became a shepherd. He is referred to as a shepherd so he can get to know her on her turf. And she would love him for who he was, not as a king, but as a person. And here's what's fascinating. 
the writers of the New Testament tells us that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. The whole Bible teaches that Jesus is the one and only son of God. He lived in heaven, in, all, in heaven for all eternity, but he made a decision to leave that, to hide his identity as the son of God and to come and to live on this earth as a human, as a man, to experience life just like us and to express his love for us so that anyone that would be willing to put their trust and their faith in him would be forgiven of their sins and all of his righteousness would be credited to their account. Their relationship with God as their heavenly father would be restored. They would be filled with the spirit of God. And this helps explain why the New Testament writers refer to those of us that make up the church as the bride of Christ and Jesus is our groom. But here's the part that I love the most. The writers of the New Testament also speak of a day in the future that we're looking forward to. It's referred to as the marriage feast of the lamb. And it's a reference to the day that Jesus will meet with his church, the people of his church face to face, just like a bride and a groom are united at a wedding. I can't wait. But there's another really fascinating detail that I've learned in the Song of Solomon that actually points to Jesus. And it comes to, I've already quoted this verse once. It comes from Song of Solomon 8. Remember this, for love is as strong as death. It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is the only time in this entire book that God's name is mentioned. And for some weird reason, not all English translation, translations use God's word uh, name here. But here's the point. The author is telling us that as strong and as real and as powerful and as beautiful as human love is, and as fulfilling and rewarding as sexual intimacy is meant to be for us as humans, it's only a flash. It's a small representation of the unlimited, immeasurable, infinitely powerful and perfectly complete love that God has for each one of us. So don't miss this. God created and designed human love and sexual intimacy to serve as a taste, a sample of his divine love for us. And you know what? Jesus knew this. In one of his last interactions with his disciples, Moments before he was arrested and then later crucified, Jesus is praying to God for his followers. And he says this, now this is eternal life that they, my followers, know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now the word know is the Greek word gnosko. And when it literally translated, it can mean a knowledge grounded on personal experience or to be intimately acquainted with someone. And here what Jesus is emphasizing is the kind of intimacy that he wants his followers to have with God as their heavenly father and for us to have with him in a deeply personal and eternally growing relationship. But here's the thing, Jesus uses this same word again in John 10 when he says this, his desire is for his followers to know or to gnosko him in a way that he knows his heavenly father. And so again, here's the point that Jesus is making. The kind of intimacy that Jesus had when he was here on earth with his heavenly father is the same kind of intimacy that he wants us to have with him and with God. But here's what's interesting. The word gnosko, it's also a Jewish idiom or an expression for the act of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. It speaks of a very t intense pattern of getting to know one another. And I realize that sounds really weird when you're talking about your relationship with Jesus. But think about this, Jesus was praying and what he was praying is that his, father, his followers would know him in a way that would be deeply emotional. It would be extremely intimate. 
And it would be so powerful that through faith in him, it would produce, get this, a brand new life in Christ that literally would extend beyond this physical life on earth. And it would extend into eternity with God as our heavenly father in a restored relationship. And so for those of us to follow Jesus, for those of us that have confessed Jesus and been baptized in him, we get to celebrate that. So we need the guard and respect the gift of sexual intimacy now, but we get to look forward to something far beyond what we could ever imagine. But I want to speak to my friends that, that don't know Jesus in that way. Maybe you've been investigating, you've been taking notes, you've been, maybe you've been burned by the church. I don't know. Maybe you've been hurt sexually. I don't know. I want you to know that Jesus loves you in a way you could never, ever imagine or fathom. It, it's more intense than the greatest love you've ever felt. And he is inviting you to know him in a relationship where you can trust him. And by putting your faith in his life, death, and resurrection, you're admitting that you're a sinner. You're receiving his righteousness as your reward. That's his gift to you when you put your faith in him. And then he fills us with his Holy Spirit so that our relationship with God is restored and we can live for him right now. So if you've never made that decision, I want you to respond and let us know in the comment section right now or, or email us at info at genesischurch.me so that we can follow up with you. But we'd love to help you take a next step in that relationship. Would you pray with me? Father, I, th I thank you for your eternal word. Um, this is an awkward subject, but what's weird is our, our culture talks about it in a way that it's not awkward. I think the culture maybe makes it awkward. So when we talk about it in a church setting, it, it feels weird for us, but the culture says, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's in, it's in advertising and go and get it in, in, in whatever you want, however you want. Would you help us to block all that out and to focus on what your word says? Would you help us to respect it for the gift that it is emotionally, physically, and spiritually? Would you help us uh, to guard it, to protect it? Would you help us as parents to talk with our children about to respect the gift of sexual intimacy? I pray for those that are single and those that are students would you help them to be so much wiser than I was when I was their age? Uh, would you guard them and give them wisdom to just wait on love and to trust that you will bring someone into their life to know that they are not incomplete without, without, with, with, if they're not married? Would you, would you protect them from burning themselves by, by playing with this gift that's meant to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage between a husband and a wife? I pray for anyone out there, Lord, that, that, has not, that is not yet following you, Jesus. I pray that today you would speak to their heart and you would draw them to you and they would begin to experience your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.